Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Elleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Daily Kos' The Brief our weekly show about politics. I'm Marcos Molises, and I'm here with Carrie Elevelt, your co-host for this show today. We have a great show today. We're going to be talking about what it takes to run for office as a woman, the challenges and the barriers that are being shattered every cycle. It, it seems every cycle we have more women candidates, more women elected to office, and I think this leads to a better outcome in any possible way, both political, policy-wise. So I'm excited to talk. We're going to have Jill Barkley-Roy of Emerge America. It's a, an organization that is focused on recruiting and supporting women candidates. We're also going to have Eliza Orleans. She is running for Manhattan DA and uh, is a uh, public defender, a social justice warrior. Really excited to have those on so we're going to have a good show, Carrie, I think. Well, I, uh, absolutely, we're going to have a good show, always. Before we bring our guest on, the, the looking at current news, this is, this is, we talked a little bit about this last week, and it is really a, um, I'm, I'm so marveling that it's a thing that is happening, and that is that Democrats are refusing to buy into this BS notion that's peddled by Republicans, it's peddled by the D.C. press corps, that bipartisanship is defined by getting votes in Congress, that the only way to be bipartisan is for Mitch McConnell to want to play nice. And we know Mitch McConnell is not going to want to play nice. Right. So so what's the what's the actual definition of bipartisan? Well, I mean, the the way the White House is defining it, which I quite like, is that it's it's getting a majority of support of a majority of Americans. Right. The, the public. He President Biden and his White House are defining bipartisanship as uniting the American public. Right. That it's a focus on the American people. Now, whether or not they pass, you know, a rescue plan, a coronavirus rescue plan with the support of a few Republicans is kind of neither here nor there for them. And they've said that consistently and they keep saying it. And I think it's such a new day in Washington because Democrats for decades have been like, if we just go the centrist route and get a few, you know, Republican votes will be seen as bipartisan and, you know, that will win us elections and whatever. And look, all of the, there's so many veterans of Obama's White House and Obama's administration in this current in this current administration, this current White House, including including the president himself. Right. Who 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 went through all those battles in 2009 where Barack Obama kept reaching out to Republicans, kept trying to get Republican votes on the stimulus package, on health care. It just went on and on and he just couldn't get any. And there's no reason to do that. And I'll tell you what, the polling on Joe Biden's agenda, in particular, the rescue plan, but also other parts of it is so profoundly so overwhelmingly supportive there's no reason that you have to get Republican votes. If the voters like your agenda and you pass it, the voters are going to reward you. So just 
looking at polling from YouGov today, out from YouGov today, right? Um, and the direct payments, the $2,000 direct payments poll at 74% support. <laughs> That's what bipartisan is. No one's going to get their check and be like, I wonder if any Republicans voted for this. I mean, mean, if Republicans don't want to cash their check because they didn't get bipartisan Republican votes, that's on them. I don't think they're going to care. And, you know, the the Civil Rights Act was passed by one vote. And does it make it any less of a landmark piece of legislation? Does it make it any less impactful? Uh, When people... Cash or Social Security check? Do they wonder? Well, I wonder what the vote in Congress was when the Social Security Act passed, and was it bipartisan enough for me to cash this check? Right? People don't care, and Republicans first they they knew that Democrats had this sort of obsession, and and I think that that was the fatal flaw of the Obama administration. Get everything that they accomplished, they could have done more had they just just for. Got, just not cared at all about getting Republican support because what they ended up doing is Republicans played to that desperation. And I thought it was desperation. They played to it. They kept extracting concessions, not promising a vote in return. They just, you know, Obama and the Republican Democrats would say, well, what about this? And what about that? And Republicans would just string them along. And when we came to the Affordable Care Act, that was about a 14-month process. I mean, we're frustrated now that we still don't have a a COVID relief bill in a couple of weeks. The Affordable Care Act was 14 months and nothing else happened in that time period. It sucked up all the oxygen. And Republicans just played rope. All they did was drag their feet. So the idea that Republicans are going to negotiate in good faith, first of all, we know they're not. And I'm not I'm not going to believe them that there's any good faith. I mean, first step would be to vote to convict uh, Donald Trump. If they did that, I'd be like the first step would be to to want to be a part of our democracy. Right. Which first is step. there's free and free and fair elections. And Biden won that free and fair election. Right. So if they want to be players at the table on legislation, then they can get on board with the fact that there's. No, not one iota of proof that there was fraud in this election, because otherwise they don't support these this American enterprise and democracy. And then the second thing that I think they would have to do, because they're going to be crying about deficits, is to introduce a bill. They introduce a bill that would revoke the Trump tax cuts for billionaires. You do that, then I'm going to start taking you more seriously. We're still going to disagree, likely, but at least I'm going to say, like, okay, it's okay to have you in a room negotiating. But right now, I don't see Republicans as a legitimate force because they've made very, very clear that they don't believe in democracy and they're making this idea about deficits. Just think about this. They're like complaining about bipartisanship. Biden's not being bipartisan. He's not reaching out enough. I mean, he he did just have that meeting with 10 Republican senators, by the way. But aside from that, they keep complaining about this. Meanwhile, like a handful of their House members in the House of Representatives from, you know, Republican House members are probably like, you know, on some chart in FBI headquarters right now where they're drawing connections between them and right wing extremist groups. I mean, so, you know, like, oh, you know, Biden isn't being conciliatory, conciliatory enough. Meanwhile, Republicans are like 
on the Republican side of the aisle, radicalizing extremists. I mean, not kidding. And and not just through the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, but also by refusing by by continuing to tell this lie, sell this lie to their supporters that somehow the election was stolen, somehow it was fraudulent, somehow they were disenfranchised. That is radicalizing people. So we have one side of the aisle that's radicalizing extremists and another side of the aisle that apparently isn't playing nice enough for Republicans on the Hill. Right. With insurrectionists and seditionists, it's, it's yeah. <laughs> why aren't we reaching out? And the thing is, it's not like these Republicans are standing for popular public you know, positions. It's not like they're saying... Look at the polls. Seventy percent say that this is too much money. Right. Then you can then you can make a case. Okay, they're, they're they they are actually defending a popularly or, or a, a popular position, and at least take that stuff credible, right? But they don't. You know, they're 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 defending the interest of the wealthy, the elite, and their desire for Democrats to fail in in uh ahead of the 2022 midterm elections and obviously 2024 presidential right so that right. is their motivation they don't really want to govern they didn't govern when they had power i mean no. that's, uh, the only no. thing they did is starve government with that billionaire tax cut that is literally their only big legislative accomplishment well, and in the last years. i mean but you know yeah I, I, you know, Mitch McConnell made clear that they weren't in the business of legislating. They were just in the personnel business, as he put it, personnel, you know, which was was which was confirming judges. And that was it. Stacking the courts with conservative judges. That's all they did other than that tax cut. And then they and then they barely minimally at certain times managed to keep the government's lights on. But usually by throwing Nancy Pelosi's to the wolves to do the negotiating on that and then saying, OK, I guess we'll approve the deal you you negotiated with the White House. That was it. Yeah, that was it. So, Carrie, we have a we have two great guests. So let's I think it's uh, we should get to our guest. The first guest is Jill Barkley Roy. She is the affiliate director for Emerge America. Emerge America. We're going to talk so much some more about what the organization does, but it helps Democratic women get elected. Jill, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. So, Jill, the, the first question is, is sort of, can you talk to us about Emerge America and what exactly it is that you guys do? Absolutely. So we are a premier training organization for Democratic women. We recruit, train, and support them to run for office and win at all levels. I like to say from the U.S. Senate to the school board. Uh, we have affiliates in 27 um, states. Uh, but we train women from all across the country and territories in our regional boot camp training program. So we're really committed to um, achieving at least 50%, preferably more um, representation of women um, in every single office available. There's over um, half a million elected offices available in the United States and women hold less than 30% of those. So that they make up more than half of the population. Well, I mean, so, okay, here, here's one, here's one question and, and there's more, but, you know, so for instance, uh, I used to cover the LGBTQ community. I know that, you know, you, you've worked on many LGBTQ issues in the past, but we had a, an organization called the Victory Fund that promoted gay and lesbian transgender candidates, right? Now, every year they would say, they would come out and I'm not, this is not meant to be a total knock on them, but every year they would come out and say, yeah, you know, we elected more LGBTQ candidates than the last year, you know, and that was just a steady thing. But my question is whether or not we're aggress- aggressively electing as many 
women candidates as we possibly can be. Okay, so there's a difference between we get more every year and we're aggressively really pushing this in. You know, do you have the support, for instance, what you think is good enough support from the Democratic establishment? Does the Democratic establishment ever ask you to stand down on a candidate Mm -hmm. so that they can push a male candidate? I mean, these are some kind of sticky issues, but I'd love to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I mean, I so I'm I was actually a victory fund endorsed candidate when I ran for office myself. Um, and at Emerge, we're um, we're partnered with Victory Fund. We're really interested not only addressing that disparity of women in elected office, but BIPOC and LGBTQ plus women. So you know, we really need to think about all of the gaps that exist. So I'll just start there. I think that it depends. I think that in most of our states, we have great relationships with the Democratic Party, but like any institution and any political party, we have barriers to overcome. And so, of course, there are people who say to women, wait your turn. This isn't your race. This isn't your time. We have someone more qualified, ready to go. And um, there was a fantastic interview with Vice President Harris last week or the week before where she said she had to learn to eat no for breakfast. Um, And I think that a lot of women within our network have to learn to hear that and just say no and say, that's okay. You can put that candidate forward, but it is my time. I am qualified to run. I'm running this race. I'm going to run the best race of race of ideas and policy issues and see if it's me. When women get elected, we introduce more legislation. We have more co-sponsors. We get more done. We bring more money back to our districts when we're elected to Congress. So I think it behooves everyone in the Democratic Party to think about parity, at least, if not more, uh, women in elected office and, you know, thinking about women of color and LGBTQ plus women. So then so then the next question on that, of course, is if if they're going against a Democrat, I mean, because every once in a while you have to eat, eat no for breakfast or in our case, every day, apparently. <laughs> I haven't been eating my fair share. I, I have to get more of it. So, you know, the, then the question becomes, how do you support and how does a woman get a foothold when the Democratic establishment is there's going to be more money that automatically flows to that person. Right. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. going to be the first thing that they're going to confront is that stable of donors developing that getting the money. Is that, do you guys do some of that? Yeah. So we, we train our candidates on fundraising and first and foremost, we train our candidates very realistically when they're thinking about a certain race, we talk about all of the pros and cons of that race. You know, are you challenging an incumbent Democrat? That looks very different than running for an open seat. Is this a district where historically a Republican has held it um, for many years? Like the district that our alum Congresswoman Lucy McBath now sits in. It was held by a Republican for many years before she came on the scene. So we have those conversations and we prepare our women honestly to think about the barriers they're going to face. We really train heavy on fundraising. Um, that's the that's the name of the game, unfortunately, still, I think, in politics. We know that money does matter in some races. And so we train our women on fundraising and we encourage them to go out and be aggressive when it comes to fundraising. I think that we've seen, you know, um, women candidates and women of color candidates, LGBTQ plus candidates be able to fundraise tremendous amounts of money, not just from traditional sources, but from their communities, because representation matters. And this idea that maybe there's only one type of candidate or one type of donor just isn't true anymore. Our candidates inspire people and they inspire people to give. So actually, I, I do want to follow up on that because 
from the outside, my perception has been that thanks to Act Blue and the democratization of democratic fundraising, that these sort of non quote non traditional, right? Not a white male lawyer with a Rolodex of rich lawyer friends, right? The traditional lawyer, that these non traditional candidates suddenly actually have not just a fundraising base, but a potentially massive fundraising base if they're able to sort of spark that. That's me from the outside without any actual numbers and figures. I'm sure you guys have a little more sophisticated analysis of that, right? Or? Yeah. I mean, we look, so whenever a candidate comes to us and we're looking at her district, we look at what, what did that candidate raise? What sources did they raise it from? What's available in state. And then we look at, um, you know, we don't endorse candidates. We don't give money to candidates ourselves, but we're definitely connected with groups like the Victory Fund, like Emily's List, um, like the Women's Democracy Network. Lots of other groups do give money to candidates and we can connect our candidates with those groups. And those are sort of those non-traditional fundraising groups. Um, we also have seen a lot of crowdfunding happen um, for campaigns. You know, um, here in Maine, there was a Senate race. Unfortunately, it didn't turn out the way that I wanted it to turn out with Sarah Gideon uh, um, beating. I know, I know. It didn't turn uh, out the way I wanted it to turn out. But there was some crowdfunding that happened in that campaign. Very interesting, right? Um, Senator Collins made a terrible vote to confirm Justice Kavanaugh. And a group of people got together and raised, I think it was over $3 million that was going to be given to whatever Democrat won the primary to help them go on in their general election. So this fundraising, there's all sorts of new things like that coming up in fundraising. And I think that, you know, our candidates are, are well prepared to grasp onto those opportunities. So that was the so if that was the old knock on a woman candidate without and even, you know, more starkly, a, let's say a, a black woman candidate mm -hmm. uh, who didn't have that socioeconomic network of high net worth individuals to write the big two thousand dollar checks. Like, that's erased. Suddenly it's erased. What does that do for your recruiting power has it has it supercharged it I think so. I think so. When we see, when we, when we can show other women, you know, again, Vice President Harris, I just keep referring to her because it's so historical and exciting. But when she gave her acceptance seat speech, when the election results were finalized, she said, I may be the first woman in the seat, but I'm not the last. That is the story of so many emerged women. Um, you know, Congresswoman Deb Haaland, who's about to become the first Native American woman who's Secretary of the Interior. She was the first, but she's not the last. More Native American women are going to run for offices like Congress and state legislatures because of her. So we see a lot of our candidates being the first, but then it inspires other candidates to come forward and run. And so our recruitment is um, inspired by our alumni. And so we talk about them all the time. We make sure their stories are out there and we're amplifying them because they're helping recruit the next generation of women who are going to run. That's my story too. I didn't think that I could run for office. And then I saw other lesbian women run for office and that made me know that I could do it. So I think that, um, yes, our recruitment is great and we're all about breaking down barriers. We don't tell our candidates no, right? We, we, find, we figure out how to get to yes. And that's important to us. So, so speaking of not the last, right, the elevation of Vice President Harris to second in command from the Senate left a gaping hole in the Senate where we now have, you know, uh, no no senator who's a black woman. Meanwhile, uh, black women make up the backbone of the Democratic Party every year, every every election. They go through the polls in historic numbers and back 
you know, uh, Democrats. So do you have eyes on anyone at this point, any races uh, that you think could um, could then fill that gap? I think that's interesting. Um, so we we saw more black women run for office last year than ever before. More black women get elected to office. It's Black History Month. So I think if you want to celebrate Black History Month, you should find a black woman candidate and donate to her campaign. So we have a lot. We are definitely at Emerge. We're centering women of color, especially black women, thinking about how we can continue to amplify and elevate them within our network. We've seen a lot of historic firsts. So Mayor London Breed is the second woman to serve as mayor of San Francisco. Francisco and the first black woman to serve in that role. And so I see her political star continuing to rise. Um, and there's definitely others. You know, I mentioned Congresswoman Lucy McBath earlier. I think that we're going to continue to see black women get elected to local office, to state legislative races, and then on to Congress and the U.S. Senate. Because yes, I think with, um, you know, when Kamala Harris became vice president, we now don't have a black woman in the Senate. And that's really not okay. So I think we need to think about how we who we can elevate within our party to run and to sit, sit in those seats. So you you've mentioned Vice President Harris a couple of times and, and <laughs> so amazing. I still can't believe it. Right. <laughs> have, have people come in and wanted to run for office specifically inspired by Harris's victory uh, in VP herself? Or, or do, you, do you get any sense of extra additional energy from her victory? Absolutely. Um, you know, we we get extra additional um, energy from any victory. So, you know, when Secretary Clinton was our nominee, we saw a huge boost in numbers. We saw a boost in numbers just this last cycle in general, because there were so many women in the presidential primary. And so many of them inspired different women to step up and run. So definitely we're seeing a boost from that. I think that um, we're going to see a whole new generation of women that are inspired by this glass ceiling being broken for sure. You know, so let me ask a, a, a different question about recruitment, but that's been kind of worrying me as we see how vitriolic um, the yeah. atmosphere has gotten. Right. Which, you know, we just witnessed the Capitol siege and lawmakers like, you know, putting furniture up against the doors and, you know, Representative Ocasio-Cortez just told her story of hiding behind a, a door as people were looking for her. And, you know, these images, I just wonder, are you starting to get any any pushback, any, you know, fall off in enthusiasm for running for office when lawmakers can feel like targets? I mean, I know that the Democratic representatives right now don't feel particularly safe, even from their Republican colleagues in some cases. And, and women, yeah, obviously bear an even bigger brunt of that vitriol and uh, and anger and hatred. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, unfortunately, it's definitely escalated. But the um, intentions and the belief systems behind what we saw at the Capitol in early January are not new. And for our candidates, especially women of color, especially LGBTQ women and women in general, knew they know when they run for office that they're opening themselves up to attacks, to threats, um, to harassment, and potentially even violence. It's very um, concerning to have to tell our candidates, you know, for example, women of color, if you're going to knock on doors in a, in a district, and maybe the folks who live in that neighborhood don't look like you, you might want 
want to call the police and give them a heads up so that the cops don't get called. We've seen that happen to our candidates. You know, when we have LGBT women, especially transgender women, we have Delegate Danica Rome and um, uh, House Representative Brianna Tacombe in Colorado. When, when our trans women candidates run for office, they get a ton of harassment and threats and hate mail. And so unfortunately, I think this isn't new. And I think that what's incredible about the Emerge Network is that it's not just recruitment. It's not just training. It's a network of support. It's other women to reach out to when those things happen and make it a little less lonely. And when there's more of us in office, this is eventually going to have to change. So hopefully this doesn't discourage women from running. Hopefully it inspires them that we need more of them in those offices so that you're not the only one going through this. And eventually we can change the culture. So I think that, you know, I'm very inspired by, um, you know, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez speaking out and Representative uh, Cori Bush spoke out about moving her office. I'm inspired by their truth telling and I hope that other women are as well. Yeah, but, you know, that the AOC, um, her speaking out was was great. And then you see Ted Cruz's response, right? I mean, he's referencing a guillotine. What, you know, she's holding a guillotine over Chuck Schumer's head or some some nonsense like that. I mean, they I, I don't I think that they're actively trying to get her hurt. I think at so this too. point they're actively. So it is it is it's really good for me to hear that that Emerge actually does offer that ongoing network because I've, I've heard stories of, of elected women who just say, you know, I, I can't deal with this. The heck with this. And then and then they resign the office. It's it's. Happened at least a couple of times, like at the city council level, but it, it's <laughs> maybe higher. But yeah. it is. Well, unfortunately, it is. I think at the city council level, yeah, I think at all levels. You know, yeah. I'm thinking about when Sarah Palin ran for vice president, and she actually put out some ads that had targets, like a like a like a firearm target, um, over the faces of Democratic women in districts. And this was right after the shooting of you know Congresswoman Giffords in Arizona. Um, so we've seen these threats of violence before. Um, I think they're getting a little bit more attention now. I think that we're saying enough is enough now, louder than we've said it in the past. But unfortunately, it's not new. And we do need to support each other and lift each other up and say, this is why we have to continue to amplify women and get more of us elected. So we're, we're almost out of time, unfortunately. But so let, let me let me sort of shift just a little bit here and, and ask you a more personal question. We were looking at your bio and it mentioned that you were Republicans for marriage equality during the the main ballot initiative for marriage mm-hmm. equality. And you were Republicans for. So were you a Republican? Oh, no. Um, no. <laughs> well, I was fortunate. I was raised, I was a Democrat in utero. I was raised by Democratic parents. Um, I did a lot of bipartisan work in my past. I, I do fully partisan work now, and I love it. Um, but I think that, you know, bipartisan work in my past, it was always really helpful for me to be able to figure out, okay, is there an issue we agree on that we can work together on? I think that that's harder now more than ever. But in 2012, I did have the opportunity to coordinate the Republicans for the freedom to marry here in Maine. And I believe it did make a difference that we got so many Republicans to support the freedom to marry on that ballot initiative. And I'm married to my wife now because of it. So, you know, I really loved that work. It was trying at times because we could agree on that issue, but then we didn't agree on other issues. But I think bipartisan work is important when it can happen. I really hope the Republican Party finds its way home and and rejects being the party of, of Trump and that we can have some of those 
bipartisan um, efforts once again. But I feel I feel like it's so long. I'm a long way away from that. <laughs> let me just let me just give a plug to the work you did there, because uh, in 2012, Maine was one of uh, just three and the first three states that year that legalized same sex marriage uh, via a ballot initiative. So that was a huge boost to what then fed into the eventual uh, 2015 ruling by the Supreme Court is to have voters on record saying we're not just striking down our ban on same sex marriage. We're legalizing same sex marriage. So that was some nice work there. Thank you. It's it's, it's professional work. I'm very proud of. So, Carrie, do you do you guys want to celebrate your uh, your alma maters? Because uh, go blue. Should we do the blue fight flight song? No. We could. We could do "Hail to the Victors." It was the best college fight song. They were so excited to find out that they were both University of Michigan alums. So I'm going to give them the floor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what can you say? I think greatest school go there. I mean. You know, be- <laughs> It is where I got my start in feminist activism and LGBT activism and in politics. So I was in student government at the University of Michigan. And honestly, if if there are young people listening to this, which I assume there are, getting involved in student government in high school and college is tremendous. And it's a great opportunity to sort of see how systems like that can work. Let me let me tell you something that I'm going to get a lot of flack for and that my 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 wife hangs over my head. I was president of my sorority at University of Michigan. <laughs> like when I had a blonde bob. Yes, it's true. So, so a lot anyway. of things have changed. I think it would be less shocking if I were a Republican than what you just said. So that's interesting. <laughs> yes, but I was also in student government and I and I, honestly it it just the, all of that teaches you a lot of leadership skills. Anyway, I I had a great time at University of Michigan. Exactly. I highly recommend it. But it is, you know, it isn't for the for the faint of heart. It's a big, it's a big, big school with a big campus. So, anyways, Jill, thank you so much. I'm I'm really inspired by your story from from fighting for equality to now fighting for equality. <laughs> so, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Carrie. It really. I mean, the issues, the safety question you asked really sort of really resonates with me. It just really brings it home because I can't imagine the crap these candidates get. I can't imagine it. I look at the comment threads, you know, when they when they post something on Facebook or or when they tweet something. And it is it's it's really another world. And people rag on me. Right. I mean, I'm a popular person to hate amongst the right. But it's it's it's. It's a whole nother level. And it, the, the personal aspect of it is, is just so horrific. And the fact that, that, uh, more and more women are running in the face of this is really sort of, it's the answer. It's, it's the solution. It's, it's to make these haters, these bigots, make them obsolete. And so I love the work that Emerge does. And I love, I mean, I, I knew about their work supporting candidates. I love the fact that they're still supporting them after they're elected because um, it's lonely, I think, being an elected female in today's society. Yeah. Well, and I, absolutely. And, 
I thought it was interesting for her to say, there's nothing new about this. It's just more out in the open, which is so true, right? I think that that this is something that a lot of female candidates, a lot of women candidates have, you know, confronted for a long time and probably haven't made a big deal of because, you know, that would just feed the suggestion that somehow, you know, they're unequal or inferior or whatever because they, you know, oh, they're complaining about that. They can't handle, you know, politics ain't beanbag, blah, blah, blah. But but it's interesting, you know, it's just that this is that Trump, who who was a serial abuser himself and, you know, surrounded himself with very abusive personalities, you know, has just brought this to the fore. And what we know about right wing extremism is in many cases it goes hand in hand with misogyny. Right. In many cases, these extremists are people who who also have histories, you know, people who commit these crimes, who go after people who sometimes kill them things like that, almost always, I mean, it is so common to have this link to their, they had been implicated in domestic violence situations and whatever. So this is just really out in the open. And it's, it's a, I mean, I think it's, I think it's horrific. And at the same time, if there were to be a silver lining here, I think that every woman who now signs up to run for office is aware that this is something they might face. And, you know, that is going to create a certain determination among these women candidates, um, this new crop of women candidates that I think will be unmatched. You know, you can't just hold public office anymore and not and not expect to come in for criticism, even if you hold like a public health position, you know, like yeah. uh, a local public health position <clears throat> or like like Dr. Fauci, you know, I mean, so anyway. Yeah. And, and there's there's the overt sexism and misogyny. And then there's also the, the, the more quiet stuff that you even see on our side. Right. The I want a woman president. Just not this one. Right. Not just oh, yeah. Hillary Clinton, not just oh, Hillary Clinton, yeah. not Elizabeth Warren, not Kamala Harris. Right. It, it just so magically happens that no woman meets this, this standard. Uh, yeah, but this, Trump did. Trump met the standard. <laughs> yeah, Trump met the standard. Trump was great. So, you know, he was just perfectly peachy qualified for that position. So let's let's bring in our second guest for this show, uh, Carrie. We're going to welcome on Eliza Orleans. She is a public defender in Manhattan, presumably, because she's running for she's running for a Manhattan district attorney. Eliza, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be here with you both. You're running for D.A. There is a sort of awakening on the left of the importance of these offices. It, it used to be nobody, nobody voted for D.A., nobody cared. And so you had some of the like the worst of the worst people, uh, former prosecutors or prosecutors running and, and just exacerbating a lot of the inequities in our justice system. And and suddenly, as of very recently, right, just four, six years, people are realizing, wait, these positions actually matter. So can, can you talk a little bit about what you do now and why you're running for this office? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad that these DA positions, which are so unbelievably powerful and have an impact on the lives of millions of people, uh, are really coming to the forefront and people are paying attention to these races. And I think that, you know, I've spent my entire career as a public defender going up against the DA's office, representing thousands of people charged with crimes who couldn't afford to hire a lawyer. And, you know, in over a decade of representing thousands of people, people who were lower income, who are black and brown, who are LGBTQIA, who were people with disabilities, 
people who didn't have power, wealth, or connections, and seeing the way in which the criminal legal system was so unjust, was unfair, and did not treat them well, I realized that you know, as a public defender, I wouldn't be able to change the system. And so, you know, that's kind of what led to my run for district attorney. So can you tell us some ways, I mean, you talk about this immense power that the DA has. What are some ways, if you were to be elected, what would change? What could you change? Absolutely. Well, right now we have a system that over prosecutes, over incarcerates, you know, really perpetuates this lock them up, throw away the key mentality, which doesn't keep us safe. And so it's important to have a district attorney who's truly committed to making real systemic changes. And so the things that I would change would be declining to prosecute low level offenses, you know, declining to prosecute drug possession, declining to prosecute sex work, um, you know, making sure that these, these minor cases where we have a huge impact on someone's life when we bring these prosecutions are no longer coming through our criminal legal system and making sure people have the help that they need for mental health issues or substance use disorder. And we're not prosecuting people for crimes involving, you know, poverty or if they're experiencing homelessness. And, you know, meanwhile, we're holding those who have wealth and power accountable. You know, you, you wrote about this situation uh, in Central Park with the, the birder who was a black man and then that white woman called the police and then he took video of it, which was brilliant of, you know, her saying, I'm going to call the police. I mean, he wasn't doing anything but watching birds. And then she called the police and said, there's an African-American man harassing me, et cetera. I think we all kind of got, you know, uh, familiar with this story when it happened. And you wrote about it in Was- in the Washington Post. And I just thought it was so interesting. You know, I I wanted to read a couple uh, paragraphs from it and just get your reflections on it, because I think what it illustrated really well in your piece was that was how this like thing that was just like really. I mean, it wasn't a misunderstanding. It was intentional on the white woman's part. Right. Mm -hmm. But then then in this case, the, the black man just gets caught in a system that is stacked against him. That is that is set up to work for the white woman and to work against him. Right. So anyway, I just thought it was interesting. A white person calls calls the police on a black man. The police arrive and take the side of his white accuser, refusing to believe his version of events. He is arrested and arraigned. An outrageous bail amount is set. His family can't afford to buy his freedom. He gets sent to Rikers Island where he sits for days, months, or even more. Eventually, his case is resolved in some way, either because the charges are dismissed or because he decides to plead guilty to a lesser charge. In the meantime, he may have lost his job, his home, his children, or some combination of the three. I mean, that is just outrageous and and just so sad. But anyway, I thought I would just, you know, that was such a good example of where the, the system goes awry. Well, thank you for sharing that. And it's it's so true. And, you know, I, I used what could have happened to Christian Cooper in Central Park last May as the example, but it does happen and it happens all the time and it happens again and again and again. And it's not an anomaly. It's not an accident. This is the way the system was designed. And so people, you know, who get accused of crimes, who lose everything they've ever worked for, sit on Rikers Island, presumed innocent but can't afford to buy their freedom. And because of this system of wealth-based detention that we have, you know, they're there and they're losing their, they don't show up for work for a few days. Even if it's just a few days, they they miss work, they lose their job. 
They can't pay their rent. They lose their home. They lose their kids to foster care. You know, and now, of course, which with is which we've seen with COVID, the infection rates at our jails and prisons have been exponentially higher than in even New York City at its worst. And so now they're there at increased risk of catching, you know, uh, the pandemic, you know, this is spreading wildly there. So, you know, I think that it's so important now more than ever to elect people who are committed to decarceration, committed to not just throwing people in jail for the sake of doing so and, and to really, you know, think about these types of reforms in a really different way. Yeah, in our world, that seems pretty obvious now, right? I mean, it, it was controversial back in the day when there was no counterpoint and defense lawyers were considered to be sort of, you know, defending pedophiles or, or I think that's changing in, in our world. But unfortunately, <laughs> we don't control who wins and loses, right? So there's another world out there. So your electorate, your people in presumably Manhattan proper is, is your, is your boundary, right? Yep. Um, do you get a sense? that your potential constituents, the people you're trying to win over, that they understand this, that this is becoming more of a conventional wisdom, or is this still very controversial with you, the defense attorney, and on the other side, you have traditional prosecutors and probably the New York Police Department and other more conservative, maybe even reactionary forces? Well, I can say that there are certainly reactionary forces out there in, against me. Uh, you know, the New York Post just attacked me within the last 24 hours. But if, you know, if the right wing New York Post is attacking me, exactly. I think I'm doing something right. But I do think that we are truly on the precipice of real change. You know, for the first time maybe ever in my life, I feel like the things that I've always been saying um, about our criminal legal system, about the systemic mm -hmm. racism and white supremacy that exist within these systems, the message is resonating. And people in Manhattan are so ready for this change. And they're excited. And so much so that some of my opponents who are career prosecutors, who've literally spent their careers locking people up and perpetuating mass incarceration... They're adopting my talking points. They're adopting progressive talking points. They're saying all the things that I'm saying, which if they've truly come around to those ideas, I'm, I'm so glad. But the, the concern is, of course, that, you know, they lack the authentic commitment to really making these systemic changes. Um, and I think that we shouldn't trust someone who's been complicit in upholding this system to now make the reforms so desperately needed. Just out of curiosity, and I, I'm sorry I'm not familiar, but I think you have like a dozen people running for this position, right? Isn't that true? I mean, it's a lot of people. No. There are a handful. I have a handful of opponents at the moment. We'll see, you know, who who really sticks it out through June. So, who sticks it out through June? So, so what's the what's the makeup of that? Def, you know, you're you you were you have experience as a public defender, right? What's yeah. the experience of defenders versus prosecutors who are running for that position? Are you an anomaly there? Very much so. You know, yeah. it wasn't, I mean, the idea when I became a public defender over a decade ago that one day I would run for district attorney, if you had told me that, I would have laughed. I would have, it would have seemed absolutely outrageous, impossible. I mean, as with so many other things happening in our society at the, at this current moment, but, but really now I think that the idea of, 
if you want to see real reform, the only person to elect is a public defender. And I'm the only public defender running. And it's what makes me the most qualified candidate to to bring about systemic change to the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, which has been far too regressive for far too long and has you know destroyed lives with impunity. So you talk about how the district attorney's office has really focused on these low level offenders while giving the rich and powerful a pass. Now, one of the <laughs> rich and powerful in Manhattan happens to be a Donald J. Trump. Is there a Trump angle to what your 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 agenda, your policy, or is that sort of somebody else's problem? Well, uh, it's very likely that the next Manhattan district attorney would take over an active investigation of Donald Trump and potentially bring additional charges. So, you know, it would be inappropriate for me to comment on a specific prosecution and what I would or wouldn't do. But I do think that, you know, we must recognize just how critical these elections are because, you know, Cy Vance, our current Manhattan DA, could have prosecuted Donald Trump and his family in 2012, in 2013, and instead took massive, you know, $25,000 plus donations from their attorneys and declined to prosecute those cases. Had he done so, we might never have had a President Trump. I mean, these repercussions are so wide reaching, so huge that, you know, people think, oh, well, I don't live in Manhattan. You know, why should I get involved in a Manhattan DA race? But this race specifically has such unbelievable implications for criminal justice reform and for holding powerful accountable just truly across the nation and probably across the world. Let me back up. I mean, that that's fascinating. I've been following that, you know, Cy Vance's efforts to get his hands on um, the, uh, you know, the tax returns from both Deutsche Bank and also from the Trump organization, but didn't realize that he de declined to prosecute for years. So that's the other side of it. Right. I mean, I'm only getting one side of it. And I did live in New York at one point, but I I this is I think he was elected after I left anyway. But, you know, I, let me back up a second. and. You know, you must talk to people who New York is kind of a special case, right? There is really I've never lived anywhere with so much diversity where if you take the subway, um, of course, and now is a little bit different than than always. But if you take the subway, you just brush up against all different kinds of people all the time. Right. But, you know, you must talk to people, too, who don't have a good idea, a good feel for what criminal justice reform means. Um, and and I'm wondering how you bring it home to them, um, you know, like an elevator pitch, bring it home to them, because I'm just looking at, you know, for instance, Joe Biden's uh, criminal justice reform initiative polls at like uh, 69 percent in the latest YouGov poll. So there's a lot of support for criminal justice reform. But I think that that means different things to a lot of people. And I wonder how you sum it up for them. Yeah. And I think that that people really are finally really in favor of criminal justice reform as a whole, that people understand that the way in which we have utilized prisons and prosecution and over-incarceration and policing is not just and is not keeping us safe. But I often you know, just try to bring it home with a story. I tell a lot of stories. You know, I've represented over 3,000 people over the last decade of my life and, and I have, you know, so many stories, but I tell a story often about a man I represented from my first year as a public defender. And I think his story kind of exemplifies just like the cruel 
unjust nature of our criminal legal system. And he, I'll call him John for the purposes of this story. John worked as an assistant manager at a Gristides, which is a grocery store here in New York, um, in lower Manhattan. And he'd worked at the same grocery store for 25 years and he'd made his way up to assistant manager. And one night he was closing up the store around 11 p.m. And he bought two bags of groceries with his employee discount to bring home to his family. And he locked up the store and walked over to the A train, got on the subway, wasn't very crowded, 11 o'clock at night, put his groceries on the seats next to him and prepared for his long ride home. At the 125th Street stop, the doors opened. Two NYPD officers got on the train, grabbed John's groceries, dumped them to the ground, and placed John in handcuffs and proceeded to take him to jail for the night for committing the crime of occupying multiple seats on a transit facility. Literally taking up two seats on the train. And I met him the next night after he'd spent the night in jail and got him out of jail. But but it's his case, which is not an anomaly, which is not, you know, unique in any way. It's actually quite ordinary in terms of the way our criminal legal system works. It was just the buildup of the heartbreak and frustration and anger with seeing cases like John's over the years and realizing that, that this criminal legal system as it operates is not fair. It is not just. It is not keeping us safe. It is rigged in favor of the wealthy and well-connected and against everyone else. And and that this is why we need to change it. And this is why we need a public defender in the DA's office. I mean, you might not be able to use this language and you may not want to, but I mean, to me, that's terrorism. I mean, it's, it's simple. There's no reason to do this other than to terrorize people for the sake of doing so. And, and, and a system that allows that to happen is, is fundamentally, like you say, it's, it's broken. Can a DA have an impact on that NYPD? And, and I mean, they're still going to, they're, they're going to make those arrests. What are you going to do? You, you, as DA, you would, you would refuse to prosecute. Yes. But they can keep doing this, right? There's no way for you. Is there anything people can do to put a, a some kind of constraint on NYPD to do this kind of work? This kind of terrorism. Well, so as district attorney, you know, you don't control the NYPD. You don't, you know, have right. any say over their budget. You don't have any say over, you know, the arrests that they make. But all they can do is bring someone to the doors of the courthouse. And then it would be my decision as to whether or not that person gets prosecuted. And so if I just was categorically dismissing certain cases, declining to prosecute them, you know, hopefully they would stop making those arrests. But also, you know, I think that one of the incredibly critical parts of, of being district attorney is, you know, making sure that the police are held accountable for misconduct. And I think, you know, so much of what we talk about is the physical violence that we've seen in the streets um, on the part of the NYPD. But the things that are less talked about are things like perjury in the courthouse, false arrests, falsifying documents. I mean, as a public defender, I saw those things with stunning regularity, this chronic misconduct, which undermines the trust and integrity that we have in, you know, in law enforcement as a whole. And, and it really hurts our communities. And so, you know, I think the the current Manhattan district attorney has really been complicit in this continuing misconduct perpetrated by the NYPD and has used his power to shield and protect officers instead of holding them accountable. And as district attorney, I would not stand for any misconduct. You know, I want to establish a unit specifically for holding police officers accountable. And that unit would, would be in charge of, of, you know, keeping track of these things, of prosecuting these things, of making sure that if someone walks into court, raises their hand, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I 
I do. And then they lie under oath. They are held accountable for that. They aren't allowed to then continue to be witnesses to put people away for years or decades based on their testimony when they are a known perjurer. Can I ask, is is there a metric you've come up with? Because speaking of declining to prosecute, right, DAs for years have said, well, I got such and such number of prosecutions. And so, you know, I'm your person because, you know, I'm putting people in jail, right? More well, is better. Right. More is better. More is better. If you're declining to prosecute, then have you is there a metric that you've come up with that you say, hey, if I meet this goal, then I'm doing what I said I was going to do? Yeah, absolutely. And I think for far too long, the metrics of success in district attorney's offices, especially here in Manhattan, have been number of convictions, number of cases brought, length of sentences. You know, those are celebrated as wins. And that should actually be the opposite. You know, we should be celebrating every time we are able to keep someone in their home with their family, putting food on the table. And the big metric of success should be someone never, ever, ever comes through the criminal legal system again. You know, can you imagine if we had a car dealership that that over three quarters of the cars that we put out were returned to us? People would be like, something is wrong with your system. And yet we're not saying that despite the recidivism rates being what they are. And so I think, you know, in, in cases that I've had where clients have successfully completed alternatives to incarceration and gone down an entirely different path and never been rearrested. Those are the cases that should be measured as metrics of success and not how many convictions we can get, the length of sentences we can get. Oh, that's fantastic. We have time for one more question. And so earlier on, we had uh, we had Jill uh, Barkley Roy of Emerge America talking about women candidates. And one of the things that, that came up was just the difficulty that women have in running for office, uh, the sexism, the it's not your turn, all those things. Um, you are clearly a non-traditional candidate for this office. Have you encountered any of those challenges in, in your run for office so far? Of course, of course. And I'm sure, you know, I heard Jill talking about this and it's true. I think it's something that is a, you know, thing that happens across the board to women, not just women running for office, but women who are elected, women in law, women in science, women in any profession. But, you know, there is something unique to running for office and being out there um, in public and getting, you know, threatening, very, you know, terrible messages that are, I mean, if, if I let you see my, my inbox, my other inbox and my DMs on Twitter or Instagram, like the rape threats, the death threats, the, the constant barrage of hatred I receive on a daily basis is, you know, enough to, I think, scare off the faint of heart from putting themselves out there and doing this. And so I think, you know, we have to push back. We have to say, you know, the more women who do this, the better. Um, and, and I'm trying to like, like, you know, Kamala Harris be the first, but not the last, you know, there's never been a woman. Manhattan District Attorney, and I'm hoping that we uh, break that break that barrier very soon. Eliza, you're amazing. Thank you so very much. Really appreciate you joining us. And thank you, uh, we'll thank be- you. And if people want to learn more, you know, yes. find us on ElizaOrleans.com. You know, we're running a, a fully grassroots campaign. The maximum campaign donation, just another way in which people maintain the status quo, is over thirty five thousand dollars <laughs> per individual donor. Isn't that just oh, wild? Man. And so it's just Terrible. another way that, they, that the people who are you know wealthy and well-connected keep their power. But we are the only grassroots campaign for Manhattan DA. We have over 7,300 individual contributions, thousands more than anyone else in the race. But so we're counting on people to give a dollar, $5, $25, whatever they can. So go to ElizaOrleans.com. And if you can't give, sign up to volunteer because we need your help. Thank you so very much. Carrie, I think it's going to be 7,301. I think I'm going to donate after we get off here. <laughs> 
I'm inspired. I'm inspired. I know. Well, I I love anyone who takes what the norm is and flips it on its head, right? I love anyone who's like, yeah, most people run and they say, hey, I've got this number of convictions and I've been a DA forever and someone who says, no, the metric really should be something else. And by the way, a public defender is a better person to hold that job. Yeah. Yeah. No, seriously. And, and what's the, the the goal is to find, you know, is to make more criminals. No, the goal is to actually have safe streets. And mm-hmm. the question then becomes what makes you safer? And she's absolutely right. If you're putting people in prison and then two thirds of them end up back in prison because they're still criminals, how did that make the streets any safer? So right. um, I really, really look forward to more of that just general philosophy sort of permeating amongst Democrats. And, and, and you know, there's there's places where might be tough to have a liberal district attorney, but our, our main cities are urban course. I mean, that should be a sort of a hotbed of progressive, uh, progressive policing, progressive DAing. I don't know <laughs> what the yeah, word yeah, would yeah. be. But yeah. yeah, absolutely. This is a situation where you, you know, if you can make it happen in New York, if you can make it happen in some of these big urban areas, you know, it's something that it's, a, it's something that can spill out, you know, into, into other areas of the country, I think. I mean, that's, that's where you 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 know start the progressive change, and then hopefully it's it, people realize, hey, this is really working. This actually really works. And, and the other thing that struck me is she also quoted Kamala Harris's <laughs> the first but not the last. I mean, yeah. I actually really do believe that this is going to be a bit of a rallying cry for not just women but non traditional candidates that aren't seen in certain places. And so I'm, I'm really excited for that that example that she set that glass ceiling that she shattered and how it's inspiring new and better people to run for office. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, and tough people too. I mean, I I love this idea of, you know, I just had to learn to eat no for breakfast. Okay, great. I mean, you know, screw you. Like I'm doing it, you know, (laughs) and, and, you know, and, and women a lot of times, and I, you know, I know a lot of just aren't socialized for that, you know, the tip typically haven't been, I mean, I grew up in the seventies and eighties and I wasn't socialized for that, but I had kind of a different personality anyway. So I was like, screw it. But um, yeah, (laughs) anyway, but you know, I mean, it's, it's still there. It's still, it's something that I think people that women in many cases are still socialized into. And the new socialization has to be, yeah, I eat no for breakfast. So come at me. Love it. So that's it for our show today. Thank you everybody for joining us. Make sure you uh, follow us, like us on Facebook or YouTube or your preferred platform of podcasting and leave a review if you'd like very much. We'd greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much to Jill Barkley Roy of of uh, Emerge America. Thank you so much to Eliza Orleans, who's running for Manhattan District Attorney. Thank you so much for Walter Einenkel for for uh, producing the show. Thanks everybody for joining in. Catch you all next week. Wear your masks. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.